Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of the Baptist Review Podcast. Before we get into this episode, I want to draw attention to a question that I ask about two-thirds of the way through the interview with Bart. The question has to do with the executive committee and the ARITF and abuse response. And you might wonder why we don't mention anything about the news this week from the ARITF about the creation of an independent 501c3 to help churches respond to and continue to carry out abuse reform in the convention. It's because this interview was recorded in early January prior to the executive committee meeting in Nashville this past week. We've chosen to leave this part of the conversation in to maintain the flow and integrity of the interview, but I wanted to mention why we don't discuss recent developments. We hope to discuss the creation of this independent organization and ongoing abuse response and reform in the very near future. But with that said, hope you enjoyed this episode of the Baptist Review Podcast with President Art Barton. Welcome to the Baptist Review Podcast. I'm your host, David Sons, and this is our third interview with SBC President Bart Barber, and I'm joined today by Rob Collingsworth and Jared Cornett, both who have uh, been in previous episodes. And Bart, thanks for coming back and spending a little bit of time with us. We're going to talk in this episode primarily about uh, trustee boards, about entities, uh, about the importance of those things, the necessity of those things, perhaps. And so I know that uh, now as president of the uh, SBC, you are a part of uh, the executive committee uh, board as uh, right. per your role as president, but you also previously have served on the board of trustees at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of those, I think, un- unrelated to you, uh, I think both of those boards have experienced uh, it, it, some significant turmoil and turnover uh, during your tenure there. And I think a lot of the question that people are asking uh, throughout our convention about trustees and the trustee system is, is the trustee system still a reliable system to govern our entities or to help guide and lead our entities? And what would you say about the trustee system as a whole? I think we have to recognize that the way we process some of what happens uh, is, a, is a factor in all of this. Southwestern Seminary, uh, the board of trustees fired paid Paige Patterson and fired Adam Greenway, and uh, the trustees um, discovered that Willie McLaurin's uh, resume uh, contained information that was not accurate. Um, one way you can look at that is to say, why didn't boards of trustees know that earlier or act earlier? But another way you can look at it is to say, they did take action. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what does it look like when the trustee system works? Not necessarily smooth sailing for everything all the time. Sometimes the working of the trustee system is messy. Uh, And so I would say our trustee system is working. It's not working perfectly. Um, We have to have realistic expectations when we realize that these are volunteers who are present on the campus of an entity or wherever the meeting is taking place uh, for four days, six days a year. And they're really dependent upon the people who are at an entity to conduct real trustee meetings that provide them with the information that they need and empower them to make decisions. Um, And there are places where that's obviously broken down. Um, I feel like we are strengthening our trustee uh, apparatus right now just because of, of all of the things that have happened in the convention over the last 10 years. Um, I think trustees are, Uh, paying more attention than they have been in the past, but it's never going to be uh, utopia. 
Uh, you're never going to achieve that with trustees. I do think that we can do better, and I think we have improved. What are some of the ways that you see those improvements through training, perhaps, or I know I've worked through some of the executive committee training and and, and whatnot. What are some of the ways that you see uh, the trustee system improving or at least recognizing that it needs to improve? Training is important. I think that's an area where we could actually improve more. Um, but I think training is happening and it is important. Um, probably the most important thing is the attitude that trustees carry on the way in and the attitude that we encourage them to have on the way in. Uh, nobody wants, and it's not productive, to have a board of trustees who come in like a Columbo TV show, uh, certain uh, who's guilty, and they just have to figure out how to prove it. Uh, that's that's counterproductive. Uh, but there have been times when you could come in as a trustee and think, man, I'm just here to go to meetings and eat lunches, and um, and 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 everything's great, and there's no real need for oversight on my part. And because uh, the entity head is somebody I helped hire or somebody who's been a friend of mine or somebody I want to build a connection with uh, or somebody who has my unwavering confidence because I admire this person. And um, and it's okay to have that admiration and it's okay to have hired somebody and for them to have your confidence. But when you're a trustee, you have a responsibility to trust but verify, uh, to quote the great Ronald Reagan. And uh, so uh, I, I think because there's been an increased level of skepticism, hard-earned uh, over the course of uh, a decade or so in Southern Baptist life. Most trustees come in um, not, not looking to be the giant slayer, uh, but most trustees do come in thinking, uh, my life could really be hard if there's a mess here, and so I need to be looking to make sure that I get out ahead of something that might cause trouble here uh, later on. And so I think trustees are asking more questions and I think uh, they're doing a better job. Better training would help. Yeah. Uh, Bart, I want to follow up on that, especially you mentioned Dr. Patterson a second ago and you mentioned people who the NTT head may be someone you hired, maybe someone you're friends with. My perception of you, when we met, you were a trustee at Southwestern. I was a student and I I, I was under the impression you were friends with, with Dr. Patterson, that you were close to Dr. Patterson. Is that is that a fair estimation? Okay. Um, yes. Uh, so I, I would say, I don't know what he thought, uh, but yes, I, when I started at Southwestern, I started there thinking I'm excited to help this seminary implement the vision that Paige Patterson has for it. Okay. So this is, this is a tough question that I'm asking you. Uh, when some of the things we know now, we've had two presidents depart under not great circumstances. That's the nicest way I can put it. Uh, nobody wants to leave an institution the way either of those men left. Well, Okay, further back, further back, but but certainly Dr. Patterson and and Dr. Greenway left under circumstances that were not great. Um, but you could go further back. I'm I'm curious. You were, by your own admission, the last person on that executive committee of trustees to kind of come around to the decision regarding the termination of Dr. Patterson. Uh, and that's what you said to the convention in Dallas in 2018. Um, to what degree? There are some things we now know about a trajectory. <laughs> of what was happening at Southwestern uh, that, that maybe some of it came, we came to a better, fuller knowledge of it during the Greenway uh, administration. 
but some of that stuff didn't begin. It would, the, the the collapse was not purely on Dr. Greenway. There was there were some things that had happened. There was a, there was a trajectory both regarding uh, finances and an enrollment that I don't remember getting the picture of things are dire, things are going down the, down the drain. As a trustee, as the person to whom it's entrusted to guard the entity, to oversee the president, are there any regrets you have about your time there of things that, looking back and having knowledge you now have or having knowledge you had then, do you wish you'd done anything differently? Would you like to just do an entire podcast episode on that question? <laughs> uh, I was about to say, probably. Uh, yes. Uh, we so could do a whole... I, I'll, I'll tell you, here's, here's probably my number one regret. Although it served a purpose, uh, you can become siloed as a trustee, and I did. I was the chair for nine of the 10 years that I served Academics. there. I was the chair of the Academic Administration Committee. Uh, the number one thing that we did was uh, degree plan changes, but also interviewing faculty as they're on the way in. Mm -hmm. And I was very diligent about that. I know a uh, faculty member you voted against, so he remembers that interview very well. There you go. Uh, <laughs> probably so. Uh, I, if you if you were coming to be appointed for a faculty position at Southwestern, I read your dissertation. Uh, if you wrote an article in a journal somewhere, I found it and I read it. If you had a blog, uh, I was looking to see what was written there. Uh, I was very thorough. Uh, in the research that I did there. And I was the chair of that committee, and that was my job. Yeah, And that took a lot of time. And I did not dig into the financial statement because that was not my committee. And I was yeah. chairing a committee that had big responsibilities that I was paying attention to. And I, I mean, I would look back now and say to myself, uh, it might have been okay for me to back off a little bit on some of the faculty work that I was doing to make time to just acquaint myself a little more with what other committees were doing, what they were responsible for. Bart, you said a minute ago that the trustee system largely is built on, it's built on trust and it's built on accountability and it's built on diligence. I think what you just talked about there is this diligence, this piece of like, we're, we're counting on trustees to be able to do these things. But the accountability, I think what we've seen, at least recently, is why does it feel like sometimes that entities actually aren't very accountable to, to trustees? Well, um, I think entities are as, as accountable to trustees as trustees make them. Uh, uh, any head of any entity is one trustee meeting away from having a different job. That's uh, true. So um, I think... A lot of people are happy with what our entities are doing. I think that's one thing that that we can understand that that uh, after all, uh, people continue to give to yeah. support them. Uh, churches continue to have people in from those entities to speak. Uh, sometimes people who um, sometimes people who say, "Well, the entities aren't accountable." Uh, not always, but sometimes what that means is, hey, I hold a minority viewpoint uh, in the yeah. Southern Baptist Convention that is very important to me that I think that entity leaders should really change things because uh, I'm unhappy with what's happening at an entity. And, um, you know, that we have to learn what it is to have a minority viewpoint. You can hold it. You can be passionate about it. You can keep trying to persuade other people uh, that what you're saying is true. Uh, but I have to walk away from the annual meeting. 
even when I'm president, uh, I have to walk away from the annual meeting sometimes and say, everybody else saw it differently than I did. And we took the vote, and uh, I'll just hang around until someday I get to say, I told you so. Uh, or <laughs> uh, which uh, well, often yeah. it's the other way often around. It's the other way around. I, yeah, I, sometimes I, I come the other way around, around later on and have to say, well, they were right, and I was wrong. I'm glad they won. Uh, but I, I think that's a great point, though, about because I do hear, we do hear that necessarily. It's like, well, the entities aren't accountable to trustees. The trustee system is broken. And and I do think some of that may just be that we don't know what to do with a minority opinion. Is that sometimes we think that account, you know, entities aren't accountable because they're not doing exactly what I think they should be doing. Uh, and I think that's a, I think that's a valid, I think that's a really great uh, insight into that. The worst thing that happens in a trustee board is not uh, usually there's not overt intimidation. Usually there's not, uh, uh, I mean, some, there've been some cases documented of intimidation or rigging the system or whatever. Um, and I want to acknowledge that sometimes that happens, but usually what happens is just what we have in our churches and our business meetings, even that people think that if they dare ask a question, or dare, heaven forbid, vote no on anything, that that makes them someone who is contrary to the Spirit of God and that they're the antagonist and the enemy and very few people want to be cast in that way. And so uh, I just, the last thing I said when I left the board at Southwestern Seminary, at my last meeting, uh, they, um, uh, they gave me an opportunity to say a word or two. And I just said to everybody, speak your conscience, vote your conscience. Um, don't be intimidated from doing that. Uh, if you can, yield to the view of the minority, or at least yield to the view of the majority. Majority, right. And work together to promote the seminary. Uh, so, Bart, is it the, the job of the trustees to be supporters or cheerleaders of the entity or people who ask the hard and the, the difficult questions of the person in the institution that they are tasked to oversee. And, you know, why are people who, who do ask those hard and difficult questions, why are they sometimes seen as troublemakers rather than people who are simply doing the tasks that the convention has given them to do? I'm going to take issue with the way you asked that question at the beginning. I think uh, asking hard questions can be the way that you are supportive of and promoting of the entity. And I'll tell you this. I felt like my, my first job as a trustee at Southwestern Seminary was to love Southwestern Seminary more than anybody else could possibly love Southwestern Seminary. That was my That ambition. was an easy one for you. I, I, I do, uh, I'm the president of the convention, so I love all the seminaries, uh, Rob. I'm going to ask you again in June. Until all my children equally. Circle back around in July. It's okay to have a special place in your heart. I will say that I'm in a long-term monogamous relationship with Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I think everybody knows that that's true. But, uh, but people, people do get labeled as troublemakers sometimes because they ask a tough question. And I would just say this, if you're if you're going to be vocal about asking a tough question, also be vocal about praising. There's there's something to praise. Amen. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's right. and it's the same thing in your church. I mean if you're everybody knows the guy in the church who's got some criticism, some negative thing to say at every decision that's made and you really lose credibility when you do that. But uh, if you're somebody who's who's as as effusive in affirmation as you are in asking questions, uh, 
I think most of us recognize that person as somebody to listen to. It's probably best not to go into your first trustee meeting if you don't have to, uh, and to talk about how this guy's falling in and and you people are all wrong. Uh, that's probably not the best way to start your tenure. Build a little uh, bit in terms of camaraderie and relationship and, and, de- and demonstrate your love for that entity, and then you're in a position to ask questions. Uh, Bart, what about executive boards or executive committees of a trustee board who, I mean, there are accusations that, I mean, it certainly was the case with you guys at Southwestern. It's, it's the case other places that those executive boards sometimes take on too much power to act without the consent of the full board. Um, I was a consistent advocate for uh, being very slow to exercise the rights of an executive committee sure. to act in place of the full board. Um and uh, I'm I'm concerned about that. There's an entire board impaneled for a reason. Uh, those are emergency powers. They should only be used in emergencies. Uh, and uh, trustee members should understand that they, apart from extenuating circumstances, they have the right to discuss and vote on uh, every decision that's made by the board. Um, the the people criticize the fact that the final decision about Dr. Patterson was made by the executive committee. Uh, and I voted in favor of that. In fact, I was the one who insisted that we publish that the vote was unanimous because I wanted everybody to know that I'd voted in favor of it. Yeah. And um, the reason why that time I was able to vote in favor of the executive committee doing something is because I knew that the action that we took, uh, but for two votes, we would have taken in a full board meeting and I was one of the votes that kept us from doing that, and my vote had changed. Mm. And I knew somebody else's vote who had changed. And so I was in a position to know that that actually was the opinion of the full board. Bart, shifting gears a little bit, we know that very soon that the uh, president's search team for the SBC Executive Committee is going to be announcing a candidate soon uh, for the EC. And it's been a tumultuous Five years or so, maybe a little bit longer. Some of you know that better than others uh, on here. It's been it's been hard. So, what advice, especially coming out of last May, would you give to the presidential search team and and to this candidate for this job that he may or she may take here soon? What would you um, say to them? The executive committee and the Southern Baptist Convention are in a moment of historic crisis. We face a lot of problems. We face financial problems. We face problems um, pushing forward uh, abuse reform. Um, We face some legal-related kind of problems. And I would just advise this person to understand this. Uh, There's one other problem that doesn't get enough attention, that if you solve it, you'll be able to solve all of the other ones. And that is the erosion of trust between the messenger body and the churches on the one hand, and the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention on the other hand. And uh, if that person will work hard to restore that trust, solving everything else will become so much easier. I'm going to follow up on the trust question because there we, we have a few questions written down here, and there's two that come later that they go directly to that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is a two-parter. You and I have individually had the conversation about both of these things. So I, I think I know some of your opinion, but I'm, I want to ask for anyone listening. Uh, there's been questions about the use of non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreements by our entities. Uh, and there are questions about the lack of financial disclosure from our entities that 
There are currently two motions that are being entertained by the executive committee. Uh, one, which would, I believe, if I'm getting this right, Rhett Burns from South Carolina made a motion that the intent, if I'm, if I'm getting this right, is to uh, ask all the entities to submit a 990 to the IRS, which is the normal means about how you go about that. The other, made by David Norman, uh, asked for a, uh, basically the business and financial plan to be amended in a way that certain 990 information would be submitted to the convention, but not to the IRS. I, I am generally in support of financial disclosure myself. Uh, I worked with David on the motion, so I'm, I'm pro-financial disclosure, but I think that part of the trust problem has to do with in what ways are our entities telling people, when we let you go, you can't say anything about what happened here. And we're, there are, there's some uh, questions about how finances are being used. And are those bad questions to ask? Are those questions that can be asked? What do you think about how to, how to rebuild trust when people are asking questions and they're curious about how things are happening at our entities? The messengers in the churches absolutely have the right to ask questions uh, about uh, financial practices at our entities. Uh, the moment we take the position that that's not the business of the churches, we've radically departed from uh, our whole idea about how all this works. The money comes from the churches. And so if we want it to continue to come, we've got to be willing to answer those questions. Sometimes some of the answers to some of those questions winds up being we have good faith reasons why we shouldn't disclose blank, but let's see how much information we can disclose around that to get maybe, maybe to maybe Absolutely. to meet your concerns. And I think the very worst answer, and I'll tell you, I've I've said this to some of our entity heads, and as we've discussed these nine ninety motions, the very worst answer that any entity can ever give, or that the convention itself can ever give to member churches or to individual Southern Baptists when they ask a question is. How dare you? Uh, if hmm. we give that an yeah. attitude or if we uh, give anything like that substance, substantively, we'd never use those words. But, uh, man, that, that kills trust. It kills the charitable instinct of people to give. Um, but, you know, if you consider uh, the fact, for example, that we have six seminaries and those seminaries, employees move from seminary to seminary. They recruit talent from one another. Um, it may not, there may be good reasons why seminaries would say, we'd rather not publish all of our salary information uh, just so we can tell people, you know, you need to come up with $1 more than this and you're, uh, and you're able to better what we're paying uh, a faculty member around whom we're trying to build a, a faculty or and a, a program. Here, yeah, a that's program. a valid concern. And so, uh, so there are some there are some things that we uh, should think about there with regard to non-disclosure agreements. Man, I am uh, I have powerful negative feelings about NDAs. Uh, people people that I have helped find the door on the way out of the staff at First Baptist Farmersville can say anything they want to say about me. Uh, we have we've never used anything like that at our church. But I do also understand that uh, with missionaries being in the circumstances sure. that we have them in sometimes, or uh, or even, you know, if we're going to uh, if we're going to start having more people in our convention who have responsibilities with regard to sexual abuse, who are interfacing with survivors, uh, there 
they're going to touch upon confidential information that in order to protect survivors and their account, that even so that they can just have the comfort survivors can to be able to communicate with some of these people, uh, we're going to need to put some things in place to make sure that they are prevented from divulging uh, things that they may hear along the way. Sure. And so uh, the problem is NDAs have been used in the past to harm survivors. Uh, and NDAs right. have been used in the past to squelch dissent that yep. is rightful dissent. Yep. And um, so I think uh, for a lot of these things, the answer uh, is uh, maybe to do something that, that not just in Baptist life, but in life today. Everybody thinks this is evil and wicked when it's one of the best things ever. Maybe we should negotiate <laughs> and compromise yeah. and find something in between that, uh, Amen. that meets everyone's concerns and helps to build that trust. We're going to come back with part two of this interview with Bart Barber after this break. Hey, I want to pause for just a minute to point people to Reconstructing Faith. This is a great podcast from Trevin Wax and the North American Mission Board. Uh, This podcast has gotten really great reviews from pastors and church leaders who want to look deeper at some of the major issues facing the church together. It's documentary style. Trevin is taking different issues and bringing in some wisdom and perspective from church history and from the church around the world. It's one of my favorite podcasts, and I hope that you'll check out Reconstructing Faith from the North American Mission Board with Trevin Wax. Thanks to our sponsor, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Hey, have you been called to do ministry, but maybe you don't know or think that you can afford to pursue a Master of Divinity degree? Well, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary wants you to know that there has never been a better time to answer God's call to prepare and do an MDiv at Southeastern. With extensive scholarship and financial assistance options at Southeastern, many students are able to receive rigorous, biblical, theological, and ministerial training in our Master of Divinity program at little to no cost. Visit sebts.edu slash mdiv to find out more about how you can get your Master of Divinity fully funded today. Bart, one of the questions that I want to ask just around the executive committee, one of the things that I've kind of begun to hear rumblings about as, as the executive committee has gone through a, a significantly tumultuous time in the last several years is, do do we need an executive committee? Like, do, Can't we just kind of figure this thing out amongst the states and amongst the other? Like, wh- Do we still need to have an executive committee or is this more trouble than, than it's worth? And, and how would you respond to somebody who would say, hey, do we even really still need an executive committee? I want to say I understand why people might think that. Uh, uh, I think part of the reason is because there have been years in the past where the executive committee gave a 14-hour presentation in the middle of the (laughs) annual meeting, complete with 136 Uh, slides and two sermons. uh And uh that can make you sit there and think, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And do we really need this? Uh, But I'll tell you, if your perspective changes and you become the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, my job has been— massively more difficult because of the fact that the executive committee is running on a shoestring staff right now and has not had permanent leadership in the top chair. And uh, if the institution went away entirely, I don't know how officers would get anything done. Really, you are uh, you are weak, weakening the role of the convention itself if you eliminate the executive committee, because the executive committee uh, makes it possible 
for the convention to get its work done and also to continue with some sort of an imp, uh, uh, an impact uh, in between meetings in some way or another. Because the convention really only exists for two days a year. Right, sure. And uh, in the middle of that, uh, for the author, uh, the authors, for the officers of the convention to have any sort of reasonable organizational framework or, uh, or, or to get their work done, and they've got to have the support from the executive committee. If you think I've done anything right as president of the SBC, and I'll just, I'll highlight some of the things that people have pointed to and said, you know, whatever we've agreed or disagreed with you on, this is something we're glad you're done. If, if you enjoyed my interview with Anderson Cooper or uh, with uh, Chris Cuomo, uh, or anything else that I've done with regard to the press. There are staff members who work for the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee who arranged those interviews, taught me how to give an interview, helped me to be prepared to go have those interchanges with the press. If you take that out, that could have been a train wreck. Any of those things could have been. And I'm appointing committees, but uh, the the people... There are constitutional requirements, bylaw requirements for people to serve on those committees. It's people who work at the executive committee who are helping me to get that done, helping me to meet the deadlines. I think most presidents, if they were honest, would tell you that they had to be nagged and needled just a little bit to get all of that in on time and to get it in the way that it was supposed to be. The committees of the convention all depend upon the executive committee to be able to help them. In fact, if you take a look at the ARITF, if you care about abuse reform, uh, the ARITF, nor anybody else working for the convention, we can't sign a contract to do, to do anything that needs to be executed for the convention. We have to have the staff of the executive committee to be able to do those things. And so... Uh, the, the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention is absolutely indispensable. We need it. Uh, I asked the question, obviously, uh, w- convinced myself of the essentiality of the executive committee. And, and I would just ask you this. I know you mentioned just a moment ago about um, the, the abuse reform implementation task force and the work that they're doing and all the work that I think we've tried to do. A lot of the, the burden of that work has fallen to the executive committee to help kind of get done. And some of the cost of that has fallen to the executive committee. And and one of the things that we've seen, I think, recently is uh, uh, some uh, disagreement about whether or not we should continue to pay lawyers and whatnot. But, but you know exactly how important it is that we do these things to, as you talked about in a previous episode, uh, uh, help survivors, ensure that we prevent these things, uh, ensure that we uh, uh, provide a, a proper legal defense for the SPC. All of these things we're trying to do at the same time. And the executive committee is, is essential to that work. Is it time for us perhaps to think about um, reallocating a little bit of the CP percentage towards helping the executive committee to do that kind of work that we've tasked them to do? The messengers have tasked us to do, to say, we want Southern Baptists to do this. And the executive committee has helped, uh, I think, execute a lot of that work do we need to then, in turn, as Southern Baptists, help the executive committee by giving them a little bit more of the CP budget to execute the work that we've asked them to do? I don't know how many of your listeners will be aware of the fact that we that we changed the allotment of the cooperative program to go to the executive committee not long ago yeah. in order to reduce it. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I think that we should completely be open to that. Personally, I don't think that the executive committee receives enough money to be able to do the tasks that the convention has given it to do. And that's not just about lawyers and legal stuff. No, it's, about, decided, the annual meeting. it's about the it's annual meeting. It's grown exponentially in right? the last more several and more years. People are coming to the annual meeting, which makes it more expensive. And uh, honestly, I think it's good for everybody if we don't lock down cooperative program and say this will never change this allocation budget no matter what, because we were willing to make a change. The executive committee was willing to make a change a little more than a decade ago to say, we'll take less. And when an entity says that, when they say we'll take less because we want more to go to the mission field, what they're really saying is we're going to try to make it on less. We're going to see how that works. And at that time, there were declining attendance at the SBC annual meeting, and they were they were running a surplus. They were able to make all of that work really easily. And entities are not going to agree to try to take less if they know that if that turns out to be a cut too close to the quick, nobody will be willing to hear them when they say, we tried this, we've reduced the amount that we're giving, uh, we're not making it. We need you to give back to us at least some of what we relinquished not long ago. And so I think it's a it's a bad pattern for the future. If we ever want any other entity yeah. to consider uh, not fighting and letting go of some money to see if we can get more to the missionaries, uh, then uh, then I think we need to demonstrate to everyone that we're willing if that if we try that and it doesn't work to go back and restore some more money the executive committee of the southern baptist convention should only receive the amount of money that is necessary for it to fulfill the necessary functions that it fills that make it possible for us to have mission boards and send yeah, missionaries and right. do those important things and the fact of the matter is they need more money just to accomplish the tasks that they have that are mission critical to the overall picture of Southern Baptist pursuit of the Great Commission. Bart, one of the um, issues and complaints that uh, has been raised over the last few years is lack of racial diversity uh, and leadership in our entities. And while it's true, Fred Luter was elected SBC president. That was a decade ago. And we've had several entity openings, and there has been no diverse hires there at all. Is this a concern of yours? Yeah, absolutely. It's a concern of mine. And we have a lot of work to do. Um, The work that we have to do is more complex maybe than people understand. Maybe people think that that all we need is for the people who are gatekeepers for positions of authority in the convention uh, to stop looking only for white men and instead to open their hearts to an idea of diversity. Uh, It's actually more complicated than that because um, I published data not long ago. I opened a portal for everybody in the convention to recommend people to serve on committees of the SBC. And it is 85, 90% white men that got recommended uh, to serve on those things. And so um, there's not only a need for having a heart that desires to see uh, racial diversity in hiring. There's also a need to just build the relationships and have them be healthy where we are aware of not just one person, not just two or three people, but a, a substantial pool of interested candidates uh, in the SBC who are getting opportunities to uh, to demonstrate their leadership capacity and to move forward. Uh, you know, I'll, I think it's uh, without 
without pulling scabs off of wounds that are barely healed, I'll just say that there was a there was a massive effort made by a lot of people who care about this very thing to make the CEO of the executive committee uh, a black man. And, uh, you know, that that fell through and we should bring t- we should carry two thoughts out of that experience. Uh, the first one is um, we should absolutely be reassuring uh, African-Americans and others, Asian-Americans, Native Americans, everybody in the SBC. We should be reassuring them that nobody walks away from that thinking, well, see, we don't have anybody qualified because we tried and this turned out to be somebody who had falsified information on his resume. Yeah. And, right. and that's, you know, this is being forced and we just don't really have anybody. We, we There are people, we do have people who are capable of uh, doing this. And and I think we would all look back over the over the history of our convention all the way back to 1845 and say that uh, we've hired some white people who weren't very good uh, at the at the work that they did, and so uh, we should be we should be working to take a chance on some of those folks. Uh, but then I think the the other side of what we need to walk away from that with is um, is how important it is that that people. Uh, who are in these other ethnic groups that are in the SBC uh, step forward and make themselves available and, um, and, 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 and be available also to take positions down the chain and work their way in and demonstrate who they are. Uh, that's, uh, but, but I think it's terribly important. I think we will get there because, uh, I mean, honestly, if you take a look at, all the factions of the SBC, they're all working hard to have ethnic diversity uh, within their own groups. And so uh, I think we'll get there. I think we've just, man, we've had some blowouts on the highway uh, trying to get there. Bart, I think this will probably be in in this sense and just kind of staying on the same topic of thinking about the future of our mission board, of our seminaries, of our entities, uh, we're we're in a a period where there there's a lot of transition. Uh, you know, I think about our seminaries and I think about our, our our boards and the way that the world is kind of changing around us and having to adapt to some of those changes and uh, seeing a, a loss of numbers in the SBC and and all these things, all these kind of challenges and obstacles and things that are kind of we're going up against. What do you see and and maybe what do you hope for the the future of our mission boards and our seminaries and the ERLC and the EC and really all of our southern Baptist entities that we continue pursuing the Great Commission and win the world to Christ. You want to ask a more specific question? I was going to say we asked you to be concise. I mean, yeah, that's, we did. That was a. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think that's the. If that, I think that's a good answer. I think looking at you know the future of it, hoping for it that we would continue to do the things that we've always done. Uh, in uh, look, a lot of people propose structural changes that have to do with all of these entities. There are people who want to make one seminary with multiple campuses. There are people who want to combine the mission boards. Um, I, I'll just I'll I'll reveal myself to be the old soul, the curmudgeonly person that you all know me to be. Okay, uh, I can't think of a single time that our chair rearrangements that we do from time to time to try to show how much more efficient we can be have actually improved entities. The strongest entities that we have are the ones that we've just left alone. Uh, The International Mission Board, except for our 
changing a perfectly good name uh, and, uh, and taking it no longer the Foreign Mission Board, but instead the International Mission Board. Uh, other than our doing that, um, we have left it with one clearly defined mission that we've never pulled the rug out from under that entity since 1845 through until today. And look how healthy they are. And look how well they're pursuing that mission. On the other hand, God bless Kevin Ezell. Look at the North American Mission Board. It's had 20 different names from the domestic and Indian Mission Board all the way through. Is that real? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, wow. All the way all the way through until the North American Mission Board of today in, in 1995, we took like 10 different things and shoved them into what was in the home mission board. They got the Radio and TV Commission. They got they got Brotherhood. They got tons of stuff that was just pushed into them. Bless their hearts. Every, every 20 years, we come in and say, uh, if you've figured out how to do the job you have now, we're going to change it completely <laughs> and uh, give you a bunch of other stuff that you have to completely reorganize to do. And I think the best thing that we could do would be just to get our hands off of all of that. Mm. And instead, let's let these entities... Uh, uh, have some stability about their mission and their reach and let them uh, move forward with that. I knew there was a longer answer in there somewhere. Rob, <laughs> there there always yeah. is. Uh, David asked about the future of our entities. I'm curious about the future of the convention in one particular area. We talked about this prior to recording, but I want to ask you on the record. I, I have opinions about the ways in which our uh, general lack of churches educating their people mm. about the convention has affected lots of things in, a, in our convention. Because, you know, I, I told you I grew up in a big First Baptist church that I didn't get a lot of that, but I got it from my parents who grew up with RAs and GAs. And uh, I just wonder to what, like I have, I have some loyalty to the convention that's from my parents who were taught it in church. I don't know a lot of churches that are doing the kind of education that we did half a century ago. How is that going to continue to change and whittle away at and harm any kind of, uh, you know, some people have a loyalty to the CP because they grew up hearing the CP is the engine. It's the fuel for our missions. We do it together and we do it for the gospel. And they grew to love it because they were taught to love it and they it's nostalgic for them it's it's home for them and there's a lot of people who right now the cp is just a, one of our acronyms and it's just this thing that has to do with money and we can give to it or not give to it we give around it we can give it, great commission giving to get our messengers but it's it's not something that we've cultivated or, or it doesn't seem to be the, the widespread culture of cultivating love for how we do ministry is there a way to recover education for our churches and for the next generation to love what we do to, so that we'll be here in another half century? This is the moment where I have to stop and ask myself if I've chosen violence today. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we, we asked you the, we asked the questions. Yeah. So, um, I, I, first of all, the answer to your question is yes, I believe there are ways to do it. Um, I, I see some people who are on the vanguard of this who, uh, first of all, the entities themselves. I think it's it's critically important that the entities themselves work to educate people about 
the mission of the Southern Baptist Convention and the various entities that, that it supports, and also about just the process of the Southern Baptist Convention and the way it all works. Uh, I think seminaries need to be teaching that for folks that are in seminary. Um, I think that the mission boards uh, need to be promoting that and encouraging people uh, to, uh, to learn about how all of that works. And I think that they are doing that to some degree. And then there are also just individuals who, uh, uh, a guy that most of you would know, Luke Holmes, uh, who is in Oklahoma, who loves Southern Baptist history, and he's using social media to educate people about Lottie Moon and about Annie Armstrong and about important historical moments in the life of the convention and Herschel Hobbs and 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 Jared Cornut, uh, a member of the Baptist faith. A member of the Baptist faith <laughs> and message. And, uh, and, and he's... He's working to help provide that kind of education. Uh, I, I will say that, um, that I think it's very important that LifeWay, LifeWay is the entity that has the capacity to reach into the local church and provide good, compelling materials, uh, weave it into other materials that they're, that they're selling to try to help people to, to learn about. Uh, if you're going on a Sunday school lesson through the book of Acts and you're learning about Paul and uh, his, his missionary enterprise and his organization of that, what a, what a great time to, to mention we're trying to do that too. Our churches are trying to have a missionary enterprise that is effective and draws on the strength of the churches to be able to, and, and that is accountable to the churches, just like Paul came back and reported to Antioch about the things that he had done. There are golden opportunities for us to be doing that. I hope that we'll all take advantage of that. And, I, and I'll say this, uh, First Baptist Farmersville travels across a state line to take our children to children's camp because we found a children's camp that when they teach missions, they teach about Southern Baptist missions. Hmm. And uh, that's important to us as a church. And so too often, I think uh, our camp experiences and um, other things that we're promoting pass on the opportunities that we have to educate people about the convention. Um, and then finally, if I wanted to really be uh, uh you know, the curmudgeon that I started to be a little bit earlier on, uh, I could point out that in our sanctuary at First Baptist Farmersville, in the very back, there is a stained glass window that has a seal on it that is the seal of the Baptist Young People's Union, which was an organization that was started in the late 1800s for students. And I uh, thought you meant an actual seal, and I thought that's an interesting choice. It's no, it's animal. Not the animal. Seal. That's an interesting choice. Other seals of better The graphics. All God's creation and everything, but no. But that eventually became what we always called training union when I was growing up. Yeah. And we had an entire approach to discipleship and education in Southern Baptist Convention, in which. Training union and missions auxiliaries were the places where we conducted this kind of education. Things change. I understand it's a visual world. It's a world where everybody's overbooked and overscheduled. There are a lot of things that are going on. Um, I think it's I, I think it's fine that maybe some of these things became old wine wineskins that we looked at and said, yeah. it's hard to make this. People aren't coming to this anymore the way that they used to. But if we thought, let's just drop it and not try to replace it at all, we're making a terrible mistake. 
Well, as a royal ambassador, I will do my best to wrap up this podcast. Okay. <laughs> uh, Bart, thank you for your time. And really, uh, this, I think, has been an insightful look at just really the convention as a whole and how essential all of our entities are to the work, the cooperative work that we're doing to do exactly what you said, to continue to emphasize the Great Commission and get the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. And so thank you for listening, Bart. Thank you for your time. We'll be back with episode five. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Baptist Review Podcast. The Baptist Review is committed to helping facilitate better conversation towards a better convention. For more information about the Baptist Review, you can check out our website, thebaptistreview.com. Mm-hmm.